0: Network MIDI session MIDI show control
1: confirmed DMX interface connected light control confirmed
0: Ethernet active audio interface active
1: and engaged Arduino
0: unit Bluetooth remote paired connected OSC IP active We're ready
1: Start the queue
0: featuring Andy Dolph, Joshua Langman, Dave Mickey, Alex Sparks and Mark Neiser.
2: It's The Queue
3: Welcome to another episode of the Queue. We also have a special guest joining us today, Drew Dalzell. He'll be joining us throughout the podcast, as well as an interview in a little bit. Well, I am so excited today. We have a full house of cast members. The bad part is I now have five tracks to edit together. At the beginning, I just wanted to quickly get some input from some of the cast members about the UDP TCP debate we covered in our last podcast, just to include them in the discussion. If you haven't heard that discussion, you may want to go back and listen to Episode 9 before proceeding here. Uh, Some of this is very technical, but I do think it's something we can all get our head around, and it is important for future development of show control as well. Well, Alec, can you write us a UDP-TCP stack and do a test to find out who is the winner?
1: I should just get, like, thousands of feet of Cat5 cable and run it through, like, the neighborhood and see which one has the lowest signal loss.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I
4: am volunteering to help with
3: that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like what I did professionally last year at Horror Nights.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And I have 500 feet of Ethernet already. Great. you, You don't have to worry about that.
1: We'll stick some couplers on it. Perfect. It'll be great.
3: Marcus, he had a ton to say, right, Dave? He
0: did. Security, government... Hated UDP, talked a lot about making it secure, and I kept going, what about the speed? He seemed to say that that wasn't an issue. It wasn't an issue, but then he would blame other stuff like Raspberry Pi or coders or shitty coders. And I agree, there's a lot of shitty coders. I'm one of them. But he didn't really have a real solution.
5: It's not a simple one is faster than the other. There are situations where TCP is the right tool. And there are situations where UDP is the right tool, depending on what you're doing. He's saying that if real network engineering people were involved in designing these protocols, they would all be TCP, and that there's pretty much not a good reason to use UDP anymore because the so-called overhead that causes, quote-unquote, latency is really just four packets, which on a small network is essentially instant. Now, he's not wrong about that. The solution that TCP provides is that you know that all of your packets got there that because the other end acknowledges that it got them. And if it didn't, after a while, it says this is the last packet in the continuous series I got and the sender will retransmit.
3: His point was that UDP are the first ones to get dumped, too, because if it gets crowded, they get lost, and you're guaranteed packet loss, whereas with TCP, you're always going to get a confirmation. Yes,
5: that's accurate. But two things. On our kind of isolated show network situations, it's not going to be congestion that's likely to cause packet loss Hmm. because we've got so much bandwidth available through a single switch that's almost certainly not going to be a problem on the scale of most even large
0: show systems. And I think Drew has a story about this.
2: The issue that I've got is, and I, I agree, there are points where TCP IP is the right thing to do. There are points where UDP is correct. Like, I get really frustrated that lighting consoles tend to always put UDP in for control input. We're talking tiny messages that I'm sending. Nothing where I'm worried about running running uh, out of bandwidth and yet they're defaulting to the protocol that has the least guarantees that my message is going to get there. I'd much rather in that case where all I'm sending is a tiny little message saying, do this action right now, how about we do the little bit of extra overhead to guarantee that one got there. Now, when I'm streaming full bandwidth video or something, sure, I need as much throughput as I can get, roll over to UDP, so I don't think it's an either or, but I get frustrated in our industry that the default seems to be go to UDP, which is the one that has the least amount of guarantee that our messages actually got all the way there.
3: Yeah, you're saying exactly what Marcus was fighting for. Yeah. That it's laziness, and it's just la- it's just what people are just used to, and taking that extra step to crank it up is going to make all the difference.
2: And some right. manufacturers do it, like stage research... For a long time, the only connection they did was Telnet, so it was only a TCP connection, and you could do that between Light Factory and and, and uh, SFX and a bunch of those things. They eventually rolled UDP in so that we could do things like communicate with ETC lighting consoles, because that was all they were putting in. Is Oh, we'll just throw U- UDP in. Like, alright, you know how? And, I, and, I just, and I'm not a programmer, but I look at it and I go, honestly, how much more is it to add that in so that we're guaranteeing packet entry on something as critical as a show message getting to its receiver. Right,
3: twelve pages is what I was
0: told. Yeah, I completely agree. Even with MIDI, I was having issues with MIDI, and um, um, well, I,
2: I eradicated MIDI from my networks because there's so many there's so many different ways it can fail, and there's nothing that MIDI gives you to help you troubleshoot where the failure was. Is it a bad cable? Is it a bad connection? Is the cable still plugged in? At least when I'm on even UDP, oh look, I can look at my switch and see if I'm getting transmission. I can ping something and see what's going on. Yeah, MIDI, MIDI is out of my networks. Yeah. I don't want it yeah. there. Well,
0: we're saying MIDI to a Element, etc. Element, and it was dropping packets left and right. It just wanted to take the MIDI messages, fire a like you. How old was the Element? Within five years?
2: They fixed a bug in their software about three years ago that if you got two incoming messages that arrived within, I want to say it's 100 milliseconds of each other, the uh, ETC boards would arbitrarily drop one of the messages. Wow. And it was an interrupt problem. It had nothing to do with the protocol because it happened on their serial interface, on their UDP interface, on their MIDI interface, through their show control gateway, everything. And we stumbled across it because we were sending asynchronous commands so I could have multiple actor actuated triggers turning things on and off and occasionally messages just wouldn't get through. Wow. And then we hooked all these things up and tried it under under controlled circumstances. And if the window was within, I I can't remember exactly, but it was around 100 milliseconds, the first message would play and none of the rest of them. And then you had a slightly wider window of like 100 to 150 that some random number of messages would play. So that could easily be if that element hadn't had its firmware updated. That could have been your issue
0: and we're usually pretty good about updating kit oddly enough it was for my midterm we did a haunted house at fullerton
2: it's actually part of the reason we switched to martin uh martin maxis the uh the m1s and the MPCs and things like that and have been there for a few years although there's we may move to something else eventually but for the moment those actually support telnet lord forbid
3: is telnet a tcp protocol
2: tcp protocol
3: okay Well, it sounds like there's a lot of wiggle room here for developers to make up some new stuff. The idea of adding a a TCP add-on to a MIDI chain to give you that confirmation back and forth would be a great business opportunity for some genius out there. Yeah, scrap everything Uh,
0: that's currently there, start from scratch with a solid new protocol.
3: Alec, are you looking for investors? Hey. I got nothing but bags of money sitting here. I don't know what to do with it all. I'm burning it right now just to stay warm.
2: You've got things like if you if you implement OSC correctly, OSC will tell you when it received commands. So even though it's using UDP as the transport mechanism, at least it's intelligent enough that if you program things correctly under OSC, you can guarantee when things got there.
3: That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. 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 But he's saying that you're, you're doing it twice in that way when it you know, could be built in. But that is how I use OSC is always sends back a confirmation either with a little LED, turning on an LED or yeah. raising or lowering a button based on whether it's completed what I asked it to do.
5: Yeah, and, and here's where I think that that can actually make sense. That e- with TCP, every packet has to be acknowledged and they're acknowledged in groups, and so it's more efficient than sending a response after every packet. But if something screws up and you lose some packets, let's say you lose quite a few, like a hundred packets or a thousand packets while you're moving a fader on an iPad that's remote controlling a console. If you're doing that over TCP, all of those packets are gonna have to be retransmitted And so then your fader is going to make all of these moves, potentially a whole bunch of up and down moves, before it finally lands on where you finished. If that was done over UDP, it just wouldn't move until it got the next packet. And then it would just jump to where you actually were now. Now, on something like a console remote, that's my preferred behavior. I don't want it to do some wacky, Thing because it lost some packets when it then gets those packets.
2: Yeah. So, but in, in that and in um, that and in that case, great. But in something where I'm sending a command to, for example, discreetly turn a strobe on and discreetly turn a strobe off, I do want those packets because if it's if I'm doing strobe on strobe off on off on off on off 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 on on, you know, doing that and it and it drops all of that in between. I, that's how I end up with things stuck on or stuck off. Mm. Absolutely. And so, and, so, and so again, I don't think that there's a magic bullet here. I think it's people yeah. have to be really aware of what they're programming, what they're trying to put in, into play, what the design parameters are doing. And that's the thing that I see is a lot of people being unbelievably lazy up front mm. about defining what they want to do with each segment of their show network. What do I expect the behavior out of this to be? What's wh- and 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 especially dealing with fail case situations? How do I right. expect this to fail when the worst happens? What's gonna? How is how's is every piece of gear in my rig gonna gonna behave? And that's yep. the type of stuff that once you can answer all those questions, then you can sit down and go, okay, what do we want and where? Um, and then you go through and you pick out your protocols and you build your network appropriately.
5: Yeah, I agree. I I think that I think that. Um, the sort of discrete commands like an on or an off or a go or a locate should probably pretty much always be TCP. And the sort of streaming commands, like any sort of continuous controller data is liable to be better UDP. Likewise, streaming audio and streaming video, there's pretty good reasons to do that over UDP. That's why, the Skype connection we're on now is all UDP.
3: Yeah. I didn't hear what you just said. I had lost some packets. What was that? <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I'm just—I My thing, I've listened to this podcast that I just edited like 27 times. So I know more about UDP, TCP than I ever wanted to know in my entire life.
2: And you're a better person for it. <laughs>
3: I don't know. I'd like to go back in time and get my my 700 hours back.
2: For someone um, for someone who's taken no programming classes ever, I've had to learn more of it than I ever want to remember. But yeah. Yeah. it's what I get paid to do. So,
3: our interview today is with Drew Dalzell. He is owner and principal designer of Diablo Sound. He is an award-winning sound designer, show control programmer, and theatrical consultant. His experience encompasses theme parks, cruise ships, theater, television, industrials, and installations. Drew has worked for Universal Studios, Walt Disney Imagineering, Disney Creative Entertainment, Nickelodeon Recreation, and Paramount Parks, among others. He's done extensive sound and show control work for Universal Studios Hollywood, most notably Halloween Horror Nights. Please welcome Drew Dalzell.
0: Hi there. Drew, the big question, show control podcast. What is your greatest show control show?
2: There's a lot of fun ones out there, but I think the one that I had that had some of the best challenges in it. I've done a bunch of programming for uh, the Nickelodeon Resort out in Florida and programming all the show control behind a live version of Double Dare. Um, and it's all that in that case it's it's SFX talking to QLab and also dealing with some Malcolm Pride stuff and uh, hog 3 running on a hog PC and doing everything with that but the fun thing about it is programming all the scoring behind the background because the uh, video the video billboards on either side of the stage are where we actually see the scores. What we've done is built video clips for every single possible score that we can have for either team and then using the scripting language inside SFX I'm tracking a variable for each team for who's in charge and who's got got the uh, lead score and then on command we can bring up the correct video clips with some creative programming. And then on top of that, if you remember the old Double Dare games the scoring system changes multiple times throughout the game. So you start with one team in control, and they can score a point, and if they take control, then the points double and then if they dare back the points double again and then there's a physical challenge and if they lose the physical challenge there's a point subtraction so it actually gets pretty complicated tracking which team is leading because that that impacts all the lighting looks and then also what the current score is and what the current score multiplier is for each team and then on top of that we've got some randomized video trivia and randomized um, audio trivia that we play so I think that one was the most fun trying to get it to all work so that from an operator perspective, they hit a go button.
3: What is the role of SFX with QLab? What are they? What roles are they each playing?
2: QLab is doing all the video playback. So I'm essentially using it like a giant video server. All the video cues, they, the theater that this runs in actually has about 15 to 18 different shows that they pull up in all kinds of different combinations. And they had decided on SFX years ago, with uh, SFX 5.6 and that's what they use for their front end. So that plays back all the audio and is also kind of the master control. So I'm sending MIDI commands over IP MIDI back to a Mac Pro running QLab um, buried backstage with all the video cues for all the shows on it and then SFX running all of the operator interface and part of the reason it's really nice about that is as of version 6.2 or whatever you can customize the interface so you can have multiple go buttons you can rearrange the go buttons you can t- turn on and turn off what's on the screen all kinds of really good stuff like that and then we're also sending uh, MIDI show control over to the um, hog PC so that we're doing all the lighting and in the same same way with that the lighting designer programs all the looks, but then I can call them up in blocks depending on what's needed. Uh, this is the winter ballyhoo for the red team, so we go to a red look that happens here, and so how we can flip back and forth. And then there's also uh, the back wall of the theater is a, about a 10K video projection, and so we use that for doing digital scenery, and we pull all that up. So QLab essentially acts as a, an intelligent video server. So I have some control logic behind it. SFX is the Opera inter- interface and the main show control, mainly because its scripting language was nice and robust and I didn't have to deal with AppleScript, which is something else that should burn in a fire. Um,
3: <laughs> Careful, we're having him on in a couple weeks, uh, the guy that invented AppleScript.
2: It's fine for what it is, but for show entertainment stuff, it's far too general a scripting language for what we need to do. That's, that's my beef with it and, it's, and there's so much legacy stuff in it that it can get hard to sort out and then the whole hog running thing so it's a, it's a, it's a fun little system and then getting all that to exist so that they can still run all the other shows they run on that so it the, the kind of has to flip on, on a dime between running Double Dare and Slime Time and then some of their karaoke nights and all kinds of fun stuff
4: Drew, do you want to talk a little bit about the process of working as a programmer or a uh, show control specialist with designers?
2: The way that works most often, it's, it's a lot of my clients are pretty big corporate clients. and In the case of something like Horror Nights, all of that's in-house. My company is hired to do the audio content design, system design, show control design, show control implementation, operation, and we rent them all of the show control machines that run the, uh, run the event. So I'm coordinating with the lighting designers, and with scenic designers, and doing all of those, but I'm also operating as a principal designer for it. Interesting. It's a similar thing with Nickelodeon, that uh, they very often bring the audio assets and video assets, but then they look at me to be both a programmer and creative input, and it's one of the reasons I've gotten a reasonable amount of show control work. The, when I talked to Nickelodeon initially, one of their complaints was that they would had other show control programmers, And the issue they'd get into is like, yeah, well, we told them it needed to be four seconds later, and they did exactly that, and the show didn't look good. And they'd look at them and go, well, that's what you told me to do. (laughs) So it's programmers that didn't understand show. And that's where I'm... I'm, My background is a designer. I've been doing theater since I was five. I've been a performer. I've been a lighting designer. I've been a stage manager. I've done sound design. And I ended up in show control as well because I have the skill set for it but I still approach everything as a designer. Yeah, I may just be moving code around, but I'm still looking at it in terms of what does this bring to the show. And I find that a lot of directors don't, they they may sit there and go, oh yeah, we want this to be four seconds later. And really what they want is, oh, we want the impact of this event to be complete and then the next event to start. Right. Great, that I can do for you. Let's work on that. Um, You know, and and learning like, okay, yeah, you want it four seconds later, but really it's going to take this piece of gear a second and a half to wind up to speed. So if you want it to look the way you think you want it to look, that wants to be more like a five and a half second lag than a four second. And it's a lot of timing, things like that. So I... I don't typically behave just as a programmer. I'm usually hired also as a designer.
3: You mentioned that you don't use MIDI, but then you said uh, MIDI show control three times.
2: The current stuff we're doing, we're not putting any MIDI in it. That's a pretty... The Nickelodeon system is a legacy system. It's been there for almost Mm -hmm. 10 years. Mm -hmm. So we're stuck with a bunch of stuff that already existed. And because of the way their setup is, they never retire all the shows at once. So, even doing something like a software update to one of the platforms can cascade and end up meaning reprogramming 20 shows,
3: right, right.
2: So like for example, making the move to from they're still on QLab two because making wow. the move to, move to QLab three, QLab three changed their video engine. A lot of the oh. clips they've got in QLab two won't necessarily mm. work, and it's going to be going through probably about four and a half thousand video clips and making sure every single one of them behaves, and if not, transcoding them into something that will. So as a result, things park, and they stay there. I think the version of SFX that they're running is at least four years out of date. It's an early version of six, because we can't run the risk of it taking down a show that they haven't touched in three, four years.
4: So if you wanted to update some of that system, could you bring in some new gear and just start using it for new shows? and leave all of the old stuff until those shows have ended, and just sort of phase it out that way?
2: You can, and I've done that with some installs, but in this case, that theatre operates seven days a week, 365 days a year, and does shows from noon till midnight pretty much every single day. So your window to do that is very, very small. Uh, You can work overnights, and then their backstage area is almost non-existent, so there's not like there's no pl- there's no room to add an additional server rack to then put in the new equipment and then strike the old one. So it's tricky. Um, when we did a s- significant system upgrade about five years ago, we actually got permission for the theater to go dark for four days. And in four days, I gutted and upgraded SFX, all the video. We pulled out a bunch of our older Alcorn McBride. Um, digital video machines and just swapped everything out but it was pretty much working around the clock for four straight days and then bringing we had a schedule of which shows we're going to need to come online in which order so tonight's going to be these three shows then tomorrow night are these two shows so we have another night to get those ones on um so it's tricky for universal i've had to do similar things with permanent attractions there where we come in and you work and install the system side by side with the old system and then they'll inevitably become one night where this is where we have to do the handoff to the new system. Uh, and what we do on that, when I do on those, is I set a deadline. So great, I can come in and I have between park closing at 7 p.m. and park reopening at 9 the next morning to get the new system online. If I hit 3 a.m. and the new system isn't working, we switch gears and start putting the old system back in. Yeah. <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: Um, and we've had a few installs where it's taken three or four attempts to make wow. it happen where you get all the way to three in the morning. <clears throat> and then if you don't think you can pull it off, the only thing you can do is start to put the old system back in.
0: True. Are you able to talk about the evolution of the sound systems for the horror mazes?
2: So, so the house of horrors was a permanent haunted attraction that they had in the park for quite a few years. But originally it was a walkthrough exhibit for the mummy, the mummy, the actual original mummy movie, not, not related with the roller coaster or anything like that. It was supposed to be open for six months. And we finally tore gear out of that. Well, they they knocked the building down about 10 months ago. And some of the equipment that we put in for that six-month install was still there when it got Whoa. knocked down. Um, so it started as a SFX 5.6 because it's what we'd used on a lot of our other stuff. And it was fine for attended operation. And it was cheap. So we put that in. But then over the years, it wouldn't. It, uh, it causes issues when it runs unattended. When, you've got, when you don't have a skilled operator there and something goes wrong, it can be tricky to figure out exactly what's going on. And Ultimately, the first version there was running on Windows 95. I mean, oh, this, uh, we, we were thrilled when we got to upgrade to Windows 2000. Um, you know, a few things like that. So that gives you an idea of the, the, the history behind it. And then about five years ago, we switched the whole system out to Alcorn McBride... Um, V16 plus with an IO 64 controlling digital bin loops and eight tracks and running through a uh, media matrix uh router so that that could run and that point at that point it runs pretty much unattended operation uh 365 days a year. They walk in it had a big green button at the beginning of the day and a big red button at the end of the day. And that's it. Um so but that was another one where we we had to do that switch over while they were putting in new new equipment for the attraction. And I think we had about a week, a week and a half to pull all that off.
3: What are the instructions to the, the one dude that pushes the green button if something goes wrong?
2: With Alcorn McBride stuff, there's not a lot to go wrong. There's no buttons or anything's on it. You have to hook up a computer to it to even see the code. The Alcorn McBride stuff is essentially a show-grade PLC. So you're programming in ladder logic, and what you what you do is you debug it up front. And those are... Like the, these, this is equipment that doesn't even have an on-off switch. It's designed to get put in and turned on and, and torn out ten years later. It's what we use for Space Mountain at Disneyland. It's what most oh. of the Disney attractions use for off-board audio. So there's there's just not a lot. Usually, what they're going to be dealing with is, oh, this speaker's out. Go back. It's an amp that failed. So you swap the amp out. It's very rarely what it is. I um, and for for those there, PLC is a programmable logic controller they're originally designed for things like automotive assembly plants and bottling plants when you go and buy a new Toyota Camry it's a PLC that controlled all of the robots to build that Camry they're really really rugged and they're designed to do one job very straightforward and very well and they're they're programmed using the, the, the language by most of is something called ladder logic. And it's when you hit this limit switch, do this action. And it's just inputs and outputs and counting things and fun stuff like that. I got to teach myself PLC programming about 10 years ago. And then WinScript, which is what the Alcorn McBride gear uses, is a variety of of a, of of a ladder logic software.
5: It's worth saying also that for people who aren't familiar with PLCs that in some ways they're a pain in the neck. But The whole point of a plc is that they are designed for mission critical life safety at stake applications yeah and so you know all of those times that we say no i will not control your pyro with with my pc or mac yeah you can do that in a carefully designed plc controlled system
2: exactly and that's and that's a trick with them and PLCs are unbelievably good for shows where you've got months to put them in and months of time to troubleshoot and shake them down and then you walk away and they run for a decade. When we do Horror Nights, we don't. We use SFX and we use some QLab rigs and some things like that because it's a short-term event and we've got operators who are there that know how to happen and there's not a lot of design time. So I need something that I can do changes very quickly on a PLC, like using an an Alan Bradley or an Alcorn McBride system or something like that, even something like, oh, we want to put a different piece of audio onto your digital bin loop, that could be an hour-long process. Pull the flash card, get it, get it right into the thing, push it back in there. We want to change so everything is going back in and and changing code. Um, and And WinScript looks like you're programming inside Excel. It looks like a giant spreadsheet. It's not that it's terribly complicated, but oh, we want to change the timing of this. Great. I need to go in and find the instances of where I did this, what subroutines are impacted, how am I going to put it all together? But the advantage is once it's done and it works, it just works. And they run and they run and they run.
4: In essence, it's it's sort of the ideal manifestation of the thing we talk about when we talk about getting computers show ready. Yeah. So, so that big list of things about disabling everything that you don't need for running your show. This is the acme of that yeah. this is you know a computer that is incapable of doing anything it's yeah. like running your show
2: for programming most of these there's no obviously there's an operating system on them but it's nothing that humans would understand you i plug I, I program everything in WinScript on a pc and then i plug a serial cable into these and it compiles the data and uploads that compiled script onto the plc oh. and the plc has a thing in it where if i turn it on One mode I can put it in is when you fire up, run this script. Great, that's it. So there's no operator interface beyond what we program the operator interface to be. And the interface on these is typically serial control, now IP and UDP, or TCP and UDP on them, and then dry contact or wet contact in and out.
3: What's wet contact?
2: It's just that you've got some voltage on the line.
3: Why would you
0: use that?
2: Why would would you use wet contact? Yeah, yeah. If, Longer distance. Didn't she also
0: use them for e-stops?
2: Yeah, in, inside the Halloween mazes, we have an IO64, which is a really simple Alcorn McBride show controller. And we use that for all of our dry contact inputs and all of our e-stops so that we've got some logic behind that before it sends commands to SFX. And then it sends commands to SFX by sending uh, RS-232. Across a serial port. E stop
0: is an emergency ah, stop. Okay, so nobody
3: dies. Yeah. If, if speaking of nobody dies, who who judges the scary meter on these things? Is there some like fifteen year old girl that they've hired that's the litmus test for, you know, I, I, I peed my pants? I mean, Well,
2: we we have had multiple code yellows. Uh, last <laughs> last year we had two code browns. Um, you can, you can fill in the blanks on what that means. Um, we have had people get evacuated out in ambulances because they've basically frozen up inside the attractions and panicked. But the majority, I mean, we see, we see 20,000 guests or more a night and... The majority of them just go through and have a great time. But beyond that, no, there's, there's whole departments inside the parks that do nothing but rate guest satisfaction and guest reaction, and there's a competition between all the mazes every single night about who's getting the best ratings. It's a big, it's a big deal.
4: Could I uh, go back to e-stops for a second and ask, typically, what does your programming for an e-stop command look like? What exactly happens?
2: It's going to depend on the attraction. For something like the uh, Halloween mazes... The, the, the first thing is what what does it need to do and our requirement for the Halloween maze is that when someone hits any stop, all audio stops, any moving props stop, uh, all lighting, all, all uh, show lighting stops happening and any area lighting goes to full so that they can evacuate and do everything and then there's an announcement that plays to tell people to clear the, clear the attraction. So that's everything that has to happen there. So what we actually do, the way I program it, is there's an e-stop flag inside the PLC. And by default, when that machine is turned on, the e-stop flag is raised. And every single script that's involved in starting the show, the first thing it does is check to see if the e-stop flag is engaged. And if it is, it won't work and it jumps to the end of the script. The only way to lower that flag is to release all three e-stops on the attraction so it's programmed again to fail into a safe mode. So if someone fires this up, even if all e-stops are in in a ready-to-go position, it won't go. The operator has to walk to each e-stop, depress it and release it so that we're checking that it's operating in both of its states. Once that is done, that enables the e-stop circuit inside the programming and that raises another flag that then when you hit the stop button for the attraction puts it into full readiness to operate.
4: And do you have crew people standing by those stops?
2: There's a C-stop at the entrance of the attraction, at the exit of the attraction, at the technical room for that. So it's not necessarily my people, but they're show operators that know where they are and how they operate. And from an operator standpoint, all it is is reach up and hit the big red mushroom. You hit the button and everything stops. And they're actually locking buttons. So when you depress one, it locks down. So my operators are the people that have the keys to then go through and release that check the attraction, make sure the situation that caused an e-stop to be pressed is cleared, and when they get permission from the maze supervisor they will then re-enable the entire attraction.
3: Does a code brown initiate a, a stop or, or code yellow? Or
2: no, they, typically a code yellow doesn't. Um, someone code panicking, some, uh, it might I honestly don't know how they dealt with that. That's, <laughs> there's some things I don't want to know. So that's the e-stop thing, but again it's that, it's that really careful idea of every step of it that the default operation is for the maze to not start. And you have to do something to get it to start. The other thing is that there's actor-actuated triggers throughout the attraction. Every single one of those buttons checks the e-stop flag before it does anything it's programmed to do. So again, if a flag goes up, that won't raise it. And then the e-stop circuits are all programmed to be normal closed. So again, they've got to hold this circuit closed the entire time. If someone pulls the cable out of an e-stop button, it's going to fire an e-stop because it'll open up the circuit. Right. So everything about it should be designed so that it's default. It's it wants to stop everything <laughs> all the time, and we're doing what we need to do to get it to actually operate the maze. But that's the only safe way to do it.
3: Sounds like my ex-girlfriend. Have they ever actually used the e-stop? Oh
2: e-stops? yeah, yeah. We've had to evacuate mazes for all kinds of reasons. It's usually like we we've had we've had people go through and pull out m80s and try to fire them off in mazes we've had security go in there we've had fights break out inside these attractions we've had props break that then cause an impediment we have to evacuate so no there's in any given season there'll be a handful of valid e-stops so where it's like nope this was a real thing um there's always the risk of you know any time you've got a large number of people in a confined area, you're worried about things like fire. So we're also tied into fire systems in a lot of these attractions. So if the fire alarm goes off, it's going to trigger the e-stop for the overall attraction.
5: Well, and obviously that makes sense, because if there were to be a real fire, you don't want special effects, which are not actually pyrotechnic to be confusing the fire department. <laughs> exactly.
2: Exactly. And, and in the case of Universal Studios, they have a fire department and a building inspector on site so we actually get inspected by the fire marshal every single night of operation at every single maze. Wow. Yep. And uh, and that's things like the flame tests when they do their initial checkoff, they will walk through with a Zippo and hold an open flame to any item in the maze for up to one full minute. Wow. And it cannot ignite.
3: So C4, is that what you treat most things with? That yeah, That's what we try, yeah. Yeah, that's what I had to put all over my clothes to do uh, The Tonight Show. Yeah. And they did test it. They lit my shirt on fire.
2: Yeah. No, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. But it's it's good. I mean, and, and understandably, you know, Universal's back lot has burned more than once. So they take right. it very seriously. Wow. So, yeah. E-stops and life safety. It means I just have to carry an awful lot of insurance.
0: disaster
2: Disaster. he died he he died in a bizarre gardening accident
3: you screwed screwed up up. that
0: was tragic really he exploded on stage fix it it. review you had on shark sandwich which was merely a two-word review just a shit sandwich
3: welcome to tales of disaster you screwed up you gotta fix it what are you gonna do Tell us your stories. Send them in, and we're going to put them on the air.
1: It's a fine line between stupid and clever. Like a flash of green light,
2: and that was it. Anytime you're dealing with large systems, you're going to have events where things don't go quite right. Um, I told you a little bit earlier about uh, the issues we ran into with uh, lighting—a certain lighting console not responding correctly to incoming messages. That's brought an entire attraction down, which can be a problem. Part of the reason we're now on Alcorn McBride for dealing with our triggers inside the maze is we used to do these with MIDI solutions F8s, but they're not up to that type of duty cycle. And so we'd get false E stops where they would claim, oh yeah, this is trigger open, but it really didn't. And since it's pretty much a dumb interface, there's no way to program around that. So like in the Alcorn McBride stuff, what we actually do is program it so that when a when an E stop button goes down, it raises a flag that says, hey, this button got pushed, and then waits for one second and checks to see if that flag is still up. And if that flag is still up, then it e-stops the attraction. So that if there's a shortened line or anything like that that's very, very brief, it won't e-stop the attraction because we've had issues with that where you're dealing with outside attractions, a little bit of moisture gets into something and you get a a millisecond or two of interruption. We don't want that to be then doing false e-stops for an entire night. Um, so it's checking to go, did you okay, and you stop one off? Wait for a second. Yes, it really went off. Stop this whole thing. I joke that I've broken more software than I've gotten to work right. I've done big shows with LCS and we've discovered time code bugs and that and all kinds of weird programming glitches. We did I did Griffith Observatory quite a few years ago, and all kinds of weird workarounds to try to get that to work. So I, I don't know that it's any outright failures as in things don't open because if you do that, then you don't keep working. But, um, <laughs> but definitely a lot where you're being really creative to figure out how to get this to keep going. I mean it's what I try to train my staff, is that have a plan A. And-
5: what was the system you did at Griffith Observatory? I'm just, just curious what sort of show control they would need.
2: Um, they, the planetarium up there runs, uh, there are a total of 47, I think it's 47 computers that run that show. The video is a laser video projection that's done from two Evans and Sutherland uh, laser video projectors, but the actual video behind it is, I think, 16 slices that's knitted together. Then there's the Zeiss Star projector that uh, actually has to run in sync with all of this. Then there's LCS playing back 30, 30 channels and 30 channels of audio with two channels of subwoofer and where we've done space mapping for all the audio that w- that moves in that space and then it's all controlled in the front end by Media Lawn manager. Wow. So, and I was primarily the LCS programmer for that. But that's just to pull off the planetarium shows. And then again, the operator for that is an is an unskilled operator. So, It's got to be designed in such a way that somebody can just walk in and, okay, I push this series of buttons and I get my show. And LCS is level control systems. Uh, The latest one is Meyer Dimitri. uh, Meyer Sound bought LCS quite a few years ago.
3: I see you're, you're talking a lot about Alcorn McBride, which I never heard of before. Yeah. My garage is filled with crap I like to buy. What do I need to buy here? So I need a starter kit.
2: <laughs> you need a lot of money first.
3: Mark, when can I come visit your garage? <laughs> you can take anything you want out of there.
2: Alcorn McBride was born after uh, Disney opened Epcot. A lot of the engineers behind Epcot got laid off after that, and many of them went to form their own companies. And Steve Alcorn, who formed Alcorn McBride, was a former Imagineer. So these are the control systems that most major theme parks use. So Disney uses them. One of the big competitors is another company called Gilderfluke. If you use Halloween stuff, you've probably bumped into Gilderfluke mini bricks and things like that. But then, like, even Wetworks, which is one of the companies that does big fountain displays. Again, it's another former Imagineer engineers that then went out and formed their own company. And that's what the Bellagio Fountain Show is built off of and things like that. So. So yeah, so uh, Alcorn. Well, pride, I can but tell it's
3: out of my price range when I look at this because <laughs> the purchase button says price quote request.
2: Yeah, you kind of have to call Alcorn. They're located out in Florida, <laughs> and then they will send you a, a quote. But I think an, an <laughs> like just an IO sixty four is a couple of thousand dollars. A digital bin loop to playback audio is, I think, around twenty grand. Okay. Uh, and then a V sixteen will be five or six grand at least. So you you spend a lot of money on these. But again, for an attraction that's going to be up for months and months and months and months or years, that's money well spent. But and then they're they're not the easiest things to program. So you see, you also see them in a lot of museum installations um, where there's right. kiosks and unintended stuff.
3: Well, my kid can go to a community college. I, I'm going to get put me down for one of the twenty grand things. There
2: you go. Grab a digital bin loop.
0: Gilderfluke is much much cheaper.
2: Yeah, Gilderfluke's yeah. nice and cheap, and, and they make great stuff too. It's a, it's a, it's just, it's a kind of different markets. Gilderfluke, okay. a lot of the haunted house market uses their gear.
0: You could get audio playback for about three fifty, for two channels.
2: Yeah, mm. as where a digital bin loop is guaranteed sync audio playback for twenty four channels. I want to say. And then you can discreetly address them, and it's all solid state, and it gets crazy.
3: What's your dream project? If I just gave you $50 million and and 20 acres, what are you going to do? What are you going to build for me, and what would you love to do?
2: The types of projects that I haven't had the opportunity to work on that would be great fun are the huge, the seriously huge outdoor spectaculars like like one of the big disney fireworks shows or huge park-wide parades or something like that i'd love to work on one of those and actually be involved with them much more from the ground up conception of them i mean i've done Mm -hmm. like i've done musicals on cruise ships and i've done stuff like that which are all fun but yeah the some of these things where you're you're tying systems together that take up a 400 acre theme park yeah and it all works together in unison um and pulling some of those off. I think those would be those would be great fun and I've never had the opportunity to to work on one of those yet. Very cool. Al-
5: along those lines, uh although not quite as big as some of the Disney stuff. I was uh, in Ottawa, Canada at the end of May and I happened to stumble across a tech rehearsal and programming session for this giant sound and light show that they do that covers the entire parliament building. Nice. I w- I was there during the day and one of the guys from the crew was just basically hanging out as a security guard to keep people including the real security guards away from the gear. Yeah. They're running I think he said 17 20k Christie yeah. 2k <sighs> resolution projectors. Wow. It's all being driven by Dataton Watchout which is kind of the logical yeah. platform for that. But apparently, everything except the projectors is duplicated. Oh yeah. There's a hot backup. There's two render machines for each projector. There's two timecode generators. There's two lightboards. It's just two of everything.
2: That's, that's our standard. Even for Horror Nights, every time they spec one system, there's actually two that goes in. Every single maze has a complete redundant SFX system in it.
3: And is there a guy ready to to operate that? My
2: guys are trained that they can hand over to a backup system in less than 30 seconds.
3: Wow. How often do they go down?
2: They don't, typically.
3: Mm-hmm. What's the longest run you've had where it's not It's gone straight through, no problem, just kept moving?
2: We've had systems that run the entire event without any issues. Um, and that's, that's like five weeks that that wow. whole event is up. That's beautiful. More what we use the backup systems for, honestly, is troubleshooting where we'll we'll have some weird glitch come up that doesn't stop the show and what Mm -hmm. we'll do is at some point that makes sense we'll flip over to the backup system to see if the glitch tracks with it and that tells us whether or not it's a hardware problem or a software problem that's smart so that's typically where it comes in is like all right what's going on here how do we need to work this so we can do it so it's a a great troubleshooting thing for us but then universal wants to guarantee it i mean when you've got twenty thousand or more guests through a night You can't run the risk that one of these attractions isn't going to operate. So there's redundant lighting systems, redundant audio systems, redundant show control systems, everything on them.
5: Now, when you say redundant systems, is it that every time they hang one light, they hang two lights? No,
2: they don't go quite that far, and we don't go that far on the speakers, but it's the full control and playback systems behind everything. So there's redundant lighting consoles that are running with each other so we run a, a primary that's running the show and a second one that's taking cues right next to it with a handoff so they can hand off the art net to the backup machine without a problem it's all that control stuff a single light going out anything that's critical typically has two lights focused on it so that even if one went down it would be a reduction in show but not a loss of show
5: yeah that makes sense
2: and that's the type of stuff that we're dealing with it's the same thing that we'll deal with with audio is that if we if we have something major go down, we've usually got other things in the room, and and as of last year, we're using Dante for doing all of our audio routing, and so we could go into Dante controller and reroute audio to a to to, to like it wouldn't be quite in the right place in a room, but we wouldn't lose complete show in a room.
3: I work on cruise ships a lot. When you do an install there, are you just coming in? plugging into their hog and then programming the lights seeing what you have available to to build your light setup or are you not involved in that
2: sometimes yes sometimes no um (laughs) a lot of the cruise ship work i did for years nickelodeon was doing overlays on cruise ships where we would take over the entire ship for a week and do a charter so i'd have one week so i'd have two weeks total one week on board the ship where it was me and whatever crew i had on board the ship to try to figure out what we were going to do and then one week of the event and on the big shows big big events we'd do 40 shows in six venues in seven days god um, and yeah. you and usually i had less than like w- w- the the, the m- favorite is we had things like slime time live which is a 45 minute show and they gave me 30 minutes of tech time
3: what well didn't you get at night time to go in there and mess around
2: no because i had the uh, the i was on the cruise before but there's still a full audience there's a, it's a full ship so, I had some overnight, but not a lot, so I could do some prep. But it was, since it was one and done in a lot of these, we'd bring the right. cast in and, and mark through, and they would have rehearsed off site with mm. limited tech. I'd yeah. have pre built what I could on site. But then, in the case of like Slime Time Live, uh, we were doing that on some of the Royal Caribbean ships. Mm-hmm. And in their Studio B, which is an ice skating rink, yeah, they put floors out but you've got that's set up with a full five camera video shoot in it you can do essentially sports broadcasting in it so i'd program all the shows and then i'd actually sit down a stage manager and call the thing live so it was calling five camera video all the lighting cues all the sound cues and typically doing it blind because i wouldn't have seen the show before that so i'd uh, just be operating sleep- off a script
3: do you sleep okay the night before
2: sure I, be- I, I, I sleep fine during the show Okay,
3: so that's Xanax. I'm assuming, right?
2: It's the nature of who I am that I, I things like that don't intimidate me, and so I just kind of go in and do it. And I, if anything, I just love the challenge. I love yes. figuring out how to do that, and it mm-hmm. and it stitches together so many of the little skills that I have. Of like, I've been a stage manager, I've been a lighting designer, and I, right. and then those those environments I get to do it all, and it's that how much can we pull off? What can yeah. we do? And companies like Nickelodeon loved it when they were doing that because I was one guy that they could put on board to wear all those hats.
3: Right, and remain calm and under pressure.
2: Yeah, if you've worked on cruise ships, you know the single most expensive thing is putting an additional person on board. (laughs) Right. They're, They're loathe to do it. In the case of Toy Story, I was on specifically for sound design, but the challenge there was four of the lead characters in the show are tracked. So you've got... Uh, what is it? Woody and Buzz are live, but you've got uh, the dinosaur, um, Ham, uh, Slinky Dog. Um, so you've got four main characters of the show that are all pre recorded and tracked, but they're interacting with live, and then wow. they're singing sometimes with sync music, but also sometimes speaking over asynchronous underscore. Wow. So you've got synchronous tracks playing over asynchronous underscore that then need to go into synchronous music. All against live mics.
3: Wow. So so are they triggering themselves or you're triggering them? No,
2: it's all triggered. There's a grand total of, when we walked away, I think there were 40, it's an hour long show and there were 46 goes
3: total. Wow. Wow.
2: Everything else, because even like the PM1D that they had in there chased SMPTE, so we'd figure out exactly what points there's a, so everything was locked together, lighting, sound, show control, you name it all of it. And in that case, the main show controller is a proprietary Disney item. But then where SFX was doing some of the playback, and I think they've since replaced the SFX systems with something else, and then the the video was a bit crazy opening it, but yeah, it's, that, was, that was quite the challenge, getting that show up and, up and running. Do you
5: have a sense of why Disney is building a proprietary show controller rather than using something like an Alcorn McBride or something that's available? In
2: that case, it's because the show controller they were using was one that they designed in 1987 when they didn't exist. All right, then. They've been doing this since before people were doing this. The last project, as far as I'm aware, to use that specific show controller was Space Mountain in Disneyland, which I worked on, and then they retired that system. But that, it was initially used in the Indiana Jones ride, so designed in the late 80s, to be rolled out in the early 90s, and then it had a lifespan of Indiana Jones all the way through to the Space Mountain rehab. But the cruise ships were built in 99, so the cruise ships still had some of these systems on board, and they were using them to tie things together like in the case of Space Mountain, the, play, the it's the onboard audio. These things play audio back off of linear flash RAM, which means in 2005, when we did the new rehab, we bought out the remaining stock of linear flash RAM in the country. There was none <laughs> left.
3: Um, I have a bunch in my basement, so you don't have all and of it.
2: It's, and the whole show had to fit in 40 megabytes. Because <laughs> that's what it was. And then the oh, only God. things that could write the linear flash, flash RAM... Was was five volt PCMCIa, and by two thousand five, everything was using three point three volt PCMCIa. So we literally had a graveyard of old PCs <laughs> that still had these in them and running Windows ninety eight to put the audio onto these cards. Wow, it's it works, it's reliable, and they figured out how to pull this off when nobody knew how to do it. Wow. Um, now and then it was and then the offboard audio that was what was onboard the coaster. The offboard audio was all Alcorn.
3: QLab, Olf, Pro DOO, post, stage caller Mad, Final Cut, Turn, SNFX, logic Logic, my midi Remotes, go It's time for the Q <harsedSihave> Review. <urancause> Joshua, hologram, tell us about New York. So what's the deal? Can I get a Tony Award? I've sent in my application three times. They haven't written me back once. I recently uh, got to go to
4: the Collaborator Party. And the Collaborator Party was an event hosted by Lindsay Jones and John Cremata, who are New York sound designers in response to the Tony Award committees dropping the Sound Design Award. So it was on Tony night, and it was a little bit of a protest slash a celebration for all of the people who are involved in theater and don't get the the big shiny awards. So there are a bunch of projection designers there. There's still no projection design award. Also stage managers, directors, actors. I saw one lonely person walking around whose name tag said actor. <laughs> It was a lot of fun. And I got to meet all sorts of cool people. Like I met about half of
3: figure 53. I met John Huntington. Did they have a rally and to sort of promote and try to have a plan to get the Tony Award back or anything like that? No, it
4: wasn't a rally. It wasn't about, oh, the injustice. It was about, let's be here and celebrate all of the collaborators who are involved in producing theater. The thing about it is there there's a lot of uh, speculation. And I think I, I think a lot of the speculation is probably correct but as far as i know the committee has not released a statement about why they dropped the
0: award what we understand is that the voters do not understand sound right
4: i mean that's that's sort so of the assumption why
0: vote on it <laughs> and why teach them how to understand sound as an art form because we're just technicians right we're not sound designers we don't design anything My feeling is if you're going to cut out sound design, you should cut out lighting. Set, costumes, yeah. Set, costumes, I don't understand sets. Several lighting designers have told me
4: they've gotten awards or they've seen, you know, lighting designers get awards. For things that are maybe projection design, really, but there's no projection design award, so it gets lumped under lighting.
0: The really bright award
4: yeah, <laughs> there were satellite parties. I've got the the list here Chicago, denver, l a San Diego, Syracuse, philly, Cedar city, uh, Louisville there I mean, but we had a lot of comrades who were there in spirit. You know, it's funny, too, because I'd never watched the Tonys before. I heard their cutting sound design whenever that happened a year ago, and I you know, I got appropriately riled up. So Gosh. this was my first time actually being like, oh, this is, you know, that's what the Tonys are.
3: We'll make sure you win the first, the Q Award. I can guarantee that right now. I'll edit this what, out so what, it can't be backtracked. What does the
0: trophy look like? <laughs> it's a go button. <laughs>
3: a golden go button.
1: It's an e-stop. When you push this Go button award, it's a physical button, and it just sends a default QLAB Go command out to anything on the <laughs> network.
3: You're in charge of programming it, so we should be fine.
1: Cool.
5: Just repurpose the Staples Easy button. Yeah!
0: <laughs> oh, we <laughs> can't paint do it that. Gold.
3: it has to be, It has to be important. It has to be something. We should give out, like, Doug Fleener's DMX gaff tape. <laughs> well, why don't we have a contest to see who can come up with the best new tony award for sound design it'll be like a cool. foot of reel-to-reel tape <laughs> that's
2: worth real money now <laughs> yeah <that's,
0: laughs> what how when where why faq the Q. you've got questions we've got long and detailed technical answers
1: uh i was recently working on the touring set of the adams family which came through my little town and it had a quote-unquote video system that came with it, which was a MacBook Pro with a VGA cable and a projector running Isadora. Isadora. I, yeah. Is, Isadora, or Izzy for it, short. Is, Isadora. Cool. Okay. How would you design a show control system to A, tour, and B, be usable without any training whatsoever mm. by high schoolers?
3: If it was me, I would use an Apple script interface at the beginning of a QLab file that has a bunch of question and answers so they can set up the show with yes or no. Or are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Have it change the parameters that way and then lock that file down into show mode and run it. That would be my quick, quick guess. Anybody else?
4: It it depends what the system has to do. It depends what kind of show it is. Uh, I mean... It, is is this like an an Isadora question, or is this a hypothetical? Well,
1: th- this specifically didn't hardly needed Isadora. It was a corner pinned video that didn't animate. I'm sort of fuzzy about why it had to happen. Maybe a digital projection and not like a gobo, but just in general for, yeah, in general control
3: systems. They probably never knew what a gobo was.
1: I I don't know, man. This the set had been around a lot through a lot of different places all across the country, so. That that MacBook Pro really got to work out doing its one frame. <laughs> wow. So I mean, so just...
4: the the question is about designing a really simple to operate video playback system. I uh, yeah, that's Vegas. Yeah, really hard to beat QLab. Yeah.
5: Well, it it depends on the budget. If the budget is there to use an Alcorn McBride hardware player with a um with a panel of physical buttons that controls it that might be the absolute most simple straightforward way to do it but it would be really expensive
2: yeah i mean you, you could do it with a digital video machine and, and and button interface it's 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 tricky with any of those because it's how many points of failure do you want to eliminate how flexible does it need to be is it, is it a guarantee that every single space it goes into, your projector distance stays the same and the screen size stays the same? Or are you designing a system that's right. going to travel and patch into an existing projector system? Or the projector, or right. you're going to have to re, re, significantly refocus depending
1: on the size of the venue you're in? I think that was why they went with Isadora, it's because every, it gets put together differently every time.
3: You know, that's why QLab's a perfect solution, especially if you have it on when you boot up that machine, you have right. it set to auto load. The Apple script kicks in, and you could have like some video tutorials on the thing in the side that says how to change the corner pins and all that stuff that you could all control from your iPhone or your um, iPad out in the audience and move that stuff around pretty brainlessly. You could probably even have them never even touch the computer and have it all done from an iPhone or an iPad. I built a system for a school like that that um, when you push the button on the computer, it boots up, fires up LX console, QLab. Um, and then it makes it plays back this welcome to your lighting system, and they just go iPad the whole way. They can write their own cues, they can just run video, without ever having to ever touch the computer. Um, as long as you plug in the VGA <laughs> cable, that would be a requirement, and the mini jacks.
5: Yeah, and, and I mean Isadora is incredibly powerful. I I don't have a lot of experience with it, but I worked with a a visiting projection designer that was using it, and. It's very impressive and very powerful. And it's extremely opaque if you don't really know your way around it. Like, I looked at it and I couldn't even figure out how to make a cue go. Now, it turned out that it was just pressing the space bar, but there was no here's obvious a, here's, way to Here's, know here's that. my sort of,
4: my beef about Isadora. Um, I may have mentioned this on here before. It I see it pop up all the time. Uh, in the sort of theater venues uh, where I'm usually working. Um, It's an amazing program that is designed for a couple specific things. And I'm being cautious how I say this. In my opinion, typical live theater is not a use that it was designed for. Mark Canelio, who wrote the software, wrote it for a dance company. It's really good at doing live rendered video that responds to, for instance, dancers moving on stage. So, if you want to shoot a projector at the floor and, and, and project, you know, a pool of water, and when the dancer moves across the stage, she'll make ripples through the water in real time, tracking her stuff like that. You know, that that's what it's built for. It it doesn't it doesn't have a cue list paradigm built into it. So. Sometimes even just getting it to understand that you want to push something and you want it to fire a cue, that's not how it thinks. It's usually, in my opinion, the wrong tool for video for theater.
2: It's similar to the the whole issue with using something like Ableton Live for straight cue playback. Right. Ableton Live is brilliant as a performance tool, but it's not designed to be a cue playback.
3: How are they... Getting the interaction part? Are they having heat sensors or something up? Or, or infrared cameras. cameras? Or infrared like, connect cameras, Or something. or something. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. Connect 360. Yeah.
0: Isidore came out of CalArts. Mark was a music student at CalArts, dating a dance major, and he created the software to have interactive video for his wife, mm. well, then girlfriend. Um, so I've used Isidore with Mark, where he shipped me a patch that he made and it was pretty much to run a patch with a camera and it altered what it saw and projected it back onto the dance performance. So the whole focus of it was designed for interactive video for dance. Hmm. And like any other tool, we decided to use it for something else.
3: Well, it sounds perfect for juggling.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah, I think you you might really get get into it, Mark. It's, it's, it's really cool.
4: It's patch-based, so it's like Quartz Composer or Max. You get these patches called Actors, and they have inputs and outputs, and you can string them together and build any kind of rendering path. It's limitless. You can sort of build anything you want.
3: It's just overkill for playing back cues. Well, everyone download it, and everyone come up with a project, and you got six days. I don't remember
4: how expensive it is it's a little bit expensive there might be a free version
0: uh, well the free version you can't edit it's only for playback so that way anyone could you could send someone a patch and you could play it back without edi- editing uh, to edit it requires a license i think a single license was less than 100 the last time i bought one for one
3: it's 450 uh, all the way up to 30 people it's uh, well eleven thousand dollars Well, guys, I have to say, when we have the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and Drew on board, it's a pretty chatty show. You guys made my job easy tonight.
1: Thank you, Andy, Joshua, Dave, Alec, and Drew. Parting thought, I've been watching a TV show called Mayday that's about aircraft disasters, and if you want to learn about control systems and what not to do, watch that. All right.
3: Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening and joining the queue.
1: Thank you. Good night, folks. Good night. Bye. Bye.
3: I'll leave us with a quote. Technology is the campfire around which we tell our stories. Laurie Anderson
0: The Q is produced by Active Media Group in association with The Q Show Cast. Music for The Q was written and performed by Kyle Swafford. For more information and links to our blog, online tutorials, cast, and videos, please visit thecueshow.com. You can contact us at info at theqshow.com. Now go out and make something, and you too can go go to 11.